Good morning, saints of Redeemed South Bay. One of the reasons that we're well aware of the fact that we're not God is that it takes us a little bit longer to get through the creation week than it took him. <laughs> we are going to be in day three today, which is Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. So I do invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Again, our text this morning will be verses 9 through 13, but I will read verses 1 through 13 for the sake of context as we begin our time in God's Word. And as you turn there, I want to let you know that back by popular demand, some of you have grown accustomed to getting the little booklets, the little ESV journals that we hand out when we begin a new series that should be coming in the next week or two. And so just be looking out for that. Hopefully it'll be coming. So sorry, uh, that's probably my fault that it's not here as we started the series. All that said, Genesis chapter 1, I do invite you to now hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. It's good and right for us to remember that he is the only true God and this is his word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Let us pray. Trying God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Furthermore, we thank you for your precious promises, and we trust that everything that you said you would do will come to pass. We eagerly await the fulfilling of your promises. But in the meantime, we are so thankful for the truth of your word that we can rely upon it, that it is dependable because you are dependable. So Lord, as we continue in Genesis, I pray that you would help us to take you at your word and therefore worship you. For such a clear account of creation of the earth that we dwell in. Open our eyes, impress upon us the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who you are and how it's displayed in creation. 
that we might be in all of you and offer our praise and thanksgiving to you ever increasingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me, if you will, that there was a wealthy architect. And this architect, he built a state-of-the-art arena. This arena held tens of thousands of peoples, and you had sporting events and plays and concerts and conferences and conventions and the like that were held at this venue. And after some years, the arena underwent significant devastation as it was enduring a chaotic civil war. And although the site was still impressive, it had lost its original glory. And before departing from the region, the, ar- the architect chronicled the development of the beautiful building and the impact of the Civil War upon it. And he placed that record inside the arena, and then he left. Decades passed by, and the population of the land vanished. The arena was never renovated, and those who once knew of the original building died. Nevertheless, centuries go on, And one day, there are four explorers, and they find this arena. Remind you that this arena is still impressive. As a matter of fact, it's so impressive that these four explorers thought to themselves, the beauty, the glory, certainly this beautiful building has never undergone any type of disastrous war. Of course, the arena changed and it aged over time, but all the explorers agreed that there was no external catastrophic event that drastically changed the arena. After much investigation and scrutiny of this structure, each explorer surmised the origin and purpose of the building. Each explorer had a different story as to how and why the arena existed, And although their theories differed, nevertheless, they respected one another's opinions. But one day, one of the explorers found the architect's chronicles. He read the records and brought the material to his fellow explorers and shared with them the fact that the arena arena had undergone a civil war. He shared with them the architect's description of the original state of the arena and how the Civil War caused drastic changes to the arena. And he indicated how the architect's documents were reliable and how the information within those documents was more than feasible. This one explorer had the audacity to suggest to all the others that they should simply take the architect at his word and that they should allow the the chronicles of the architect to be the ruling authority as they continued on exploring the arena. He said, after all, the architect is the only one who was there. He designed the arena. He was on site during its construction and its development. He He saw the final result. He witnessed the effects of the war upon the structure, and we have reliable testimony that should guide us as we continue on in our exploration. 
the three other explorers looked at each other. They looked at one another, and they burst out in laughter. You fool! Your understandings, your thoughts, and your explanations are far too simple. Certainly our findings are superior, they said. So take those chronicles and burn them. Beloved, this is the situation that we find ourselves in concerning the book of Genesis. This illustration points a picture of a similar situation that each and every one of us have to navigate through. However, the decisions that we make have far greater ramifications than the decisions that the explorers made. Furthermore, the record that we have is far greater than the architect's chronicles. Like the explorers, most people today live in the world presupposing that they can come to adequate understandings of the origin and purpose of this world on the basis of what? Human observation. But the Christian is not to believe in such folly. The Christian is to say that the earth in which we currently live is not in its original state. We say the earth has been corrupted by the fall and that it has undergone drastic changes as a result of the flood. And furthermore, we say that God has graciously recorded the origin and purpose of his creation beginning where? Beginning in the book of Genesis. Let's simply put it this way. God was there. We were not. He recorded it. It requires humility for us to take him at his word. And when we do so, what happens? We get laughed at. You get ridiculed for, for believing this book. And if you haven't been ridiculed for believing this book yet, then you probably aren't telling enough people that you believe this book. You will get laughed at. It's the way that it is. And I want to encourage you, saints, to learn to accept and, yes, even appreciate getting laughed at. Because God intends for his people to joyfully endure the trials of this world, fully knowing a day is coming when we will dwell with him upon the renewed earth forever and ever and ever and ever. If we take the creation account in the book of Genesis as the historical record of God's creation of this earth and all that's within it, then we have the opportunity. Hear me, please. We have the opportunity to heighten our worship and our thanksgiving to God if we simply take him at his word. And it's within this framework that I want us to consider our text this morning because creation reveals the glory of God and it necessitates his worship. This brings us to our main idea this morning. Genesis 1, 9 through 13 emphasizes at least two at least two of God's attributes in creation so that you might be in awe of who God is and what he has done and thus worship him. I want to be clear. Uh, there are far more than two of God's attributes that will be seen in this text, but at least two of them jump off the page to me. And I want us to consider them as we work our way through this text. 
First, we're going to look at God's wisdom and variety, verses 9 through 10. And then we're going to look at God's providence and reproduction in verses 11 through 13. So first, God's wisdom and variety, verses 9 and 10. Let me read again verses 9 and 10. The text reads, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. If you remember, by the end of day two, God, through the agency of his word, had caused an expanse to separate waters from waters, such that there were waters above the expanse and waters below the expanse. And what we have is this expanse being identified as, as heavens or sky. And now here at the beginning of day three, the waters under the heavens come into focus. These are the waters that covered the earth. And we're told again in verse 9 that God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And I want to talk just for a moment about the mood of this Hebrew verb. It's called jussive is the mood. And, and all that means is it's an expressed desire. And we see in our English translations with the word let. For example, if I were to say, let the people be attentive to the preaching of God's word, then I would be expressing my desire. But I don't have the authority or the ability to make any one of you attentive to the preaching of God's word this morning. However, when a justive is expressed by a superior, it takes on the sense of a command or an imperative. So I can say, let there be all I want. But when God says, let there be, to the things that he created during the creation work, week, the justive takes on a completely different sense. And this is exactly what we see in our text. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And guess what? It was so. This is the power of God on display, beloved. It was so can be translated and it came about or it came into existence. And what we see is the powerful agency of God's word, the expressed will or desire of God causes what he has willed, what he has expressed to come into existence instantaneously. We've seen it before and we'll continue to see it as we work our way through the text. And once again, this concept gives credence to the idea that God creates ex nihilo or out of nothing. God speaks and instantaneously the waters under the heavens are gathered into one place and simultaneously dry land appears. It's interesting when we think about the, the gathering of the waters into one place. On the one hand, because the, the waters are gathered into that one place, some have suggested that there was originally one supercontinent that later drifted as a result of the flood. This would be something akin to what well, we all probably grew up hearing, Pangea, which many geologists adhere to today. On the other hand, because in verse 10 the plural term seas is used, others have suggested that the water, although gathering into one place, 
They were gathered and contained in distinct but connected locations, and so therefore the earth was similar to what we see today, multiple continents, if you will, with interconnected waters. I don't think really your decision on that is that important, to be completely honest with you. But I do want us to emphasize the verbal expression of God's desire caused the waters to be gathered together and for the dry land to appear. And it seems like Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, provides a commentary on this very day of creation. Turn there with me, please, if you'd like. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9. There's places in Job that seem to indicate this day of creation as well, and even places in the Proverbs, but Psalm 104 is perhaps my favorite text. The psalmist, beginning in verse 5 of Psalm 104, says, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Does that sound like day three to anyone else? It sounds like we have a commentary right then and there that God speaks, and at the command of the Lord, all that he desires instantaneously takes place, and we have a massive shift upon the earth. Back in verse 10 of Genesis 1, It says that God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And this verse introduces a a contextual distinction, that distinction being the term earth. The term earth can refer to both dry land and water together, as seen in verse 1. Remember, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but later we're told that the earth there is covered by water, So we understand that it can refer to both, but it can also refer strictly to dry land, which is the hard matter or the dirt or the rock or the ground that we typically move upon, and that's what's being indicated here in verse 10. And so as one works their way through the Bible, he has to let the context of the term terming determine what the text means by it. It's the same Hebrew word, edits, is the Hebrew word, and it can be translated earth or dry land, and in some places it means the whole earth, and in other, me- in other places it means specifically dry land, and, and then in other places it means specifically a portion of dry land. And so anytime you uh, see earth or land, you can probably assume that the word is eretz, and however the English translation translates it is doing maybe a little bit of interpretation for you based off of their understanding. It's helpful for us to think through if land or earth is being determined. But here, clearly in verse 10, dry land appears. He's talking about the dry land upon the earth. And what we see in verse 10 of day 3 is what we've seen in the previous two days. That is, God forms... And then God names. God forms, and then God names. The forming and then the naming respectively display the power and authority of God. 
We're used to that. But at the end of verse 10, we're introduced to a fascinating little phrase. And this phrase will be repeated in the subsequent days of creation. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. In day one, the text says, And God saw that the light was good. In day two, there is no expression of divine approval whatsoever. We don't get that phrase. In days three, four, and five, we get, and God saw that it was good. In day six, we get two things. We get a one, and God saw that it was good. But we also get, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So in every day, other than day two, there is an explicit expression of God's approval of what he had done. So we should conclude that God wasn't pleased with what he did in day two, right? Of course not. That's a bad conclusion. That's, that's wrong. That's not what it means. And we can understand that even understanding chapter 1, verse 31, when it says God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We understand that toward the end of day six, God looked back on everything that he had made, everything that he had accomplished, which would include everything he had done in days one through six, yes, even day two, and he said that it was very good. And so we understand that all that was created and fashioned by God was stamped with God's approval. Nevertheless, the question is begged, why is there no explicit expression of divine approval within day two. And this is where I believe the wisdom of God is emphasized by the suspension of that phrase until day three. By the end of day two, we could have observed, if we were there, lots of water with some sky in between. But God's evaluation, it was good, comes after the waters are gathered and dry land appears seemingly because at that point, on day three, the earth became ready to support life upon it. The uninhabitable earth had now reached its intended state of habitability, if you will, with skies and seas and dry land. In other words, God had finished forming the earth and he was about to fill the earth with creatures of all sorts, of all kinds. And what we see up to this point in day three is God's wise orderly formation of skies and waters and dry land, which gives way to his wise orderly filling of those entities. And as he fashioned his once uninhabitable creation into an inhabitable creation, he looks back on day three and declares it was good. Now the earth is ready to be inhabited. And we know what's coming in days four through six. We know that God is going to fill the skies with luminaries and with birds. We know that God is going to fill the seas with fish and with sea creatures. We know that God is going to fill the dry land with animals and with mankind. And the wisdom of God is emphasized in this orderly structure and making of various settings wherein his creatures would dwell and thrive and flourish. And what do we do? If we're honest with ourselves, we, we take this for granted. But this is the wisdom of God on display each and every day before our very 
eyes. It's God's wisdom in variety. Think with me just for a moment. We uh, observe a bird walking on dry land. And it's awkward. Just think of a pigeon at the pier. Not very smooth, right? It's awkward. Yes, a bird can walk on dry land, but the skies are made for seagulls to soar. And when we observe an eagle in flight, we say, what a wise God we have, that he created the skies, then he crafted an animal terrain in those skies. When a bird is seen in flight, we have an opportunity to praise God for his orderly creation. Here in California, we're blessed to be able to go to the coast and to see dolphins and whales and seals and sea lions. I grew up in Ohio. We didn't, we didn't have any of those things. And uh, when you see a sea lion on dry land, he's struggling, isn't he? <laughs> Poor fella. You're like, man, that does not look smooth. But the seas are made for sea lions to swim. And when we go out on a boat or watch from the shore and we see the twist and the turn, we were just at the LA Zoo not too long ago and we're watching a seal and a sea lion. It's amazing. Look how, how smooth they are in that water. Look how fast they are in that water. That's an opportunity for us to praise God for his wisdom and variety. How many of you have seen a deer swim? I may or may not have done some uh, YouTube videos in preparation for this <laughs> sermon. I, I kid you not, I, I'm watching these deer swim. I, could, I remember that they could because I've seen it before, but I'm watching these. They look so awkward. Their, their eyes are bugging out. They know they're not supposed to be there. Uh, they're freaking out a little bit, thinking, can we make it? Can we make it? It's kind of awkward. Oh, but when you see a deer dance through the forest, what a beautiful thing to behold. Yes, deer can swim, but when a deer dances on dry land, we have an opportunity to praise God for his wisdom and orderly creation. You know, preaching through Genesis at the beginning of football season is interesting. <laughs> because maybe for the very first time in my life, I've given thanks to God for football being played on dry land. <laughs> I kid you not. I, I'm thinking the athleticism and the execution and the ability of the human body to, to move and to, to twist and to do the remarkable things that it can do on dry land is a result of God's wisdom in creation. If you don't believe me, you have homework. Try running 80 yards in water. It doesn't look good, it doesn't feel good, and it's very difficult. We are made to move upon the dry land. Beloved, God's wisdom and variety is seen in the making of the skies. It's seen in the making of the seas. It's seen in the making of the dry, dry land as we anticipate him filling these various settings with creatures fashioned specifically to thrive in or on them in the subsequent days of creation. And so praise God, saints, for his wisdom of variety 
from the creation order. But day three is not quite done. This brings us to our second and final point. God's providence and reproduction. God's providence and reproduction. Verses 11 through 13. The text says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Once again, we see the verbal expression of a divine will cause that desire to come about, to come into existence. This time, the dry land that had appeared already earlier in day three now begins to bring forth plant life. And there are three distinct Hebrew terms used of this plant life. Plant life. Uh, the ESV translates them vegetation, plants, and trees. Vegetation, plants, and trees. And there are at least two ways to understand these three terms. Uh, the first way. Some suggest that these three Hebrew terms indicate three separate kinds of plant life. Uh, it could be rendered this way. That they generally will think of the first term having to do with grass or that which covers the ground. The second term having to do with herbs or shrubs and bushes or, or all. And the third term having to do with trees. Another way to understand these three terms would be this, that the first term is a general term which includes all plant life, while the other two terms are more specific de designations within the general term for plant life. And so you could render the Hebrew in such a way uh, and be legitimate to understand it in both ways. But guess what? I don't think... It's really all that important. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's really all that important which of these two views you take. What I do think important is this, is that we affirm the text clearly states that God decre decreed all plant life that exists upon the earth. All of it. And furthermore, the text emphasizes that the plant life that God decreed had seed in it or fruit with seed in it, such that the plants could reproduce each according to its kind. In other words, God made mature plants ready to reproduce, ready to multiply, each according to its kind. The end of day three introduces life on earth, albeit plant life, but life nevertheless, which was immediately caused by the word of God rather than some evolutionary process or some chemical reaction. That's what the text clearly says. And we know that there's a plethora of theories out there as to how life began upon the earth. But God, the divine architect, tells us how life began upon the earth. He spoke and plant life came into existence with the ability to cause more plant life to come into ex existence via its seed. I, I don't know any other way to understand the clear teaching of the text 
And believe it or not, I'm not a botanist. But I do want to consider seed for just a moment with you. The reason why I want to consider seed is God's wisdom is on display in the making of seeds. It can be discerned even in the various types of seeds among plant life. And you all know it. Some seeds are fashioned such that a gentle breeze will carry them to their destinations to be planted. For those of you who have kids or maybe if you grew up in an area that had lots of dandelions, I can't go on a walk with my kids without them seeing those white fluffy things. They must blow. And what happens? With a gentle gust of wind or with a gentle blast of their breath, the seed goes. And right there we see the wisdom of God. How creative. But other seeds are fashioned such that a strong gust of wind can cause them to fly through the air and to be planted in that way. When I was a kid, we called them uh, propellers or helicopter seeds. It's the seeds of a maple tree. And you see a gust of wind and the helicopter goes off. You're like, you see how far that thing went? It's the wisdom of God. Other seeds can be eaten by wildlife. They're not planted by the wind, but they're planted as the animal passes its excrement. And even in that, we can see the wisdom of God. Think of a bear eating berries. In modern, I'm sorry, God created a variety of seeds to be carried a variety of ways. And with each one of those seeds, he placed a genetic structure so that each plant could do what? Could reproduce according to its kind. In modern science, we hear terms such as class and order and family and genus and species to classify living things. However, such classifications are human concepts. And I want to be careful here. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are absolutely worthless. But what it does mean is this, that any human concept that classifies that, that which God made certainly cannot be authoritative. Certainly cannot be authoritative. The biblical concept is that God creates specific living things which are able to reproduce each according to its kind. And some may suggest that the term species is similar to the biblical term kind. However, I would simply say it is paramount that we understand how people define the terms that they use as we engage in conversation with them. As we work our way through Genesis 1, we will see the phrase, each according to its kind, ten times. Ten times. And so it's vital for us to understand what is meant by the term kind. I want to read an excerpt of a book called The Battle for the Beginning. It's by John MacArthur. And he hopefully notes, and I quote, the term kind is not a technical term. It simply designates a category of related organisms capable of breeding with one another. The fact that creatures reproduce according to their own kind is a fundamental rule of genetics. Each organism has a unique DNA structure with genes and chromosomes that determine all its characteristics. Careful breeding can emphasize or minimize certain characteristics within genotypes, 
but no amount of cross-pollination can cause a whole new life form to arise from the species that exist. He continues, boundaries are set on which kind or species may be cross-pollinated. I love this. Attempting to crossbreed an oak tree with, a, with fungus would not produce any offspring whatsoever, much less a whole new kind or species. Absolutely nothing in this section of Scripture, and for that matter, nothing anywhere in the Bible, suggests that any living kind or species evolved from another kind or species. The plain language of the text means that each kind was created directly out of nothing by God. In fact, it is fair to say that this phrase, according to its kind, clearly refutes the very heart of evolutionary idea. It debunks the notion that all plant life descended from a common source, and it sets limitation of the degree of difference between any creature and its offspring. End quote. So many theories. So many people with so many degrees have a lot of things to say. And if we're not careful, we're tempted to maybe consider more deeply the people with degrees than the divine order of God. It's clear, brothers and sisters. All said, God created all plant life as mature with seed in it or within its fruit so that each could reproduce according to its own kind. He spoke and it came into existence. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. That brings us to the end of our text. And I've talked a lot about reproduction, but I've not necessarily explicitly talked about God's providence in reproduction, which is the title of this final point. So we need to peek ahead a little bit. Same chapter, but look with me at verses 29 and 30. This is toward the end of day six, and God had now made all of the creatures that I previously mentioned. And in verse 29, the text reads, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now let me pause for a moment. I, I know later that we are told that we get to get down on some meat as well, and I thank God for that. <laughs> but right now, we're told that God gave us the, the plant life that he made on day three for food, not just for mankind, but for all of his creatures. God created plant life before any of his creatures were made so that those creatures could have food. And if we think of the providence of God of, as, as God's sovereign care or God's sovereign dealings with his creation— then what we have here is God's providence for his creatures before they even came into existence. As day three comes to a close, God truly is finished forming the creation. 
And by the end of day three, the earth is truly ready to be inhabited by his creatures, which he will begin the very next day. Everything is set up for creatures not just to live upon the earth, but to thrive and to flourish upon the earth that God created. But you see, God's providence is not just for those creatures that would be created immediately in the following three days. Rather, he had provision for generation after generation on his mind as he created plant life, which we see in the fact that each plant can reproduce according to its kind. God knows that he'll make creatures who will reproduce according to their kind. And thus he provides food for them and their progeny on day three in such a way that this food will be plentiful and renewable. This is how the psalmist David in Psalm 145 can say in verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. It's because God created the way he created with providing for his creatures on his mind, even on day three before they existed, that hundreds of years later, we can affirm God gives food to all. Beloved, this is God's providence in reproduction. And so what are we to do? It's really simple. First to believe him, and then to thank him, and to praise him and to worship him for his wise provision from generation to generation. For apart from Genesis 1, we wouldn't come to these conclusions. But with Genesis 1, God has authoritatively stated that he has created and provided for all of his creature. I'll tell you what, my wife made a salad this week that was fire. <laughs> Your boy was getting down. Huh, honey? I said we can make it all the time. Yep, amen. I, I never thought so much about the greens in my salad this week. I never gave so much thanks to God for a salad as I did this week. And it's simply because we're working our way through Genesis 1 bit by bit. It's simply because God surrounds us with things to give him thanks for and to see his wise creation and his providence for his people. And so saints, in conclusion, we've heard from God's word. We have seen the wisdom of God in variety. We have seen the providence of God in reproduction. And I simply want to encourage you to trust the architect the divine architect, that is. His book makes sense out of our experience. His word makes sense of this earth that we dwell upon. His word invites us to worship him for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he will do. And if we take him at his word, then we must simply stand in awe and offer him the worship that is due his name and his name alone. Amen? Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that it is to consider it. 
Lord, my prayer is that we would indeed see you in your creation on the basis of your word and that we would be attentive and sensitive to the many blessings that you've bestowed upon us and the various ways that you provide for us so wisely. And so, Lord, this week, help us to give thanks for dry land and for waters and for skies. Lord, this week, help us to give thanks for the plants that are around us, their beauty, and the sustenance that they provide us. Lord, you are a great God, and you have greatly blessed your people. Thank you, Lord. Forgive us for not offering praise and thanksgiving as we ought. Help us to slow down and to honor you, whether we eat or drink, and in everything that we do, that you might be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.